All right, well, hey, good morning, Calvary. Uh, good to see you guys. I know uh, some of you, but probably don't know all of you. And my name's Peter. I'm one of the pastors on staff here, and it's great to see you. And if you're visiting or if you're just checking us out, if we can... If you're here just because you want to hear from God, if there's anything that we can do for you or help you, then love for you to grab me after the service, Emmanuel, some of the folks who have been in the lobby wearing the greeter dealios. Um, we just want to provide whatever help or assistance um, we can, even if it's just learning more about the church or, or whatever we can do. And if you've been here, this is not your first Sunday. If this is your 100 millionth Sunday here at Calvary, we still want to know ways that we can serve you and help you. And so we'd love to grab you if there's something that we could do. For you and your family. Um, we're excited about tonight, right? Because tonight, if past pre-COVID numbers are right, then we may have like, a, I don't know, 900 to 1,000 folks who are crammed into this campus. Uh, and it's a great opportunity for us as we've done for years, right? We, we keep using these words that we want to be a sweet aroma of Jesus to those around us. And this is just a great night, something Calvary's done, where we open it up and if families are looking for a safe place to bring their kids, then we just want to bring them to a place where they'll be cared for, where they'll be loved, where they can get one or two Reese's peanut butter cups um, so that their parent can eat that on the way home. And I know a lot of you have been working over the past few days and past few hours to set this up. Up, and you're going to be serving tonight. And so we're just grateful for what you're doing. Uh, I think in a lot of people's minds in today's culture, when they think of Christians, they may not think sweet aroma. Um, and so what an amazing opportunity we have as a body to kind of help people have that, that takeaway. So we're excited about that and appreciate all those who are going to be involved uh, to do that tonight. And we're excited to come to God's Word, right? It's something Great to be, and a lot of us believe the same thing, not all of us may, and it's great to be in a room where we can affirm what we believe through singing, and we should never take for granted the opportunity to open up God's Word, because God still speaks from it and through it, and it is a privilege. We're doing more than just looking at words on a page. We're coming to hear from the God of the universe, and what an amazing opportunity and privilege we have to do that. So we're going to jump into that, and before we do, let me pray. Father, I pray right now for the hearts of everybody in this room and my heart that we probably have lots of things that are a distraction <clears throat> um, or we're thinking about or had happened this morning or will happen this afternoon or, or uh, we're just processing through that will distract us from what you have for us. And so whatever's in my spirit, Father, that will be a distraction from uh, communicating the words you want me to, I just pray that absolutely the Holy Spirit uh, will remove that and will help me. And for others who may have distractions to hear the things you want to say from your word, will you please help them and remove distractions? We come, Father, because we do want to honor you, because we do believe, many of us, that you're real and that you're alive and that you do speak. And so, Father, thank you for this time together, and uh, we trust the Spirit to perform his work for the glory and honor of Jesus, and it's in his name that we pray these things. Amen. Well, if you wanted to, you could jump on your phone right now, and you could pretty much take a test or a survey for anything, right? You could jump on your phone right now, and you could take a test or a survey to figure out if you're an introvert or an extrovert. Anybody ever taken those surveys? 
No, you're either too introverted or extroverted to have time to do that, right? You could, if you're, if you're kind of tracking with life, you could jump online today. You could take a survey to figure out what's your Enneagram. Now, don't walk out and protest. That's not like your newest astrological sign, right? It's this personality test. There's 42 different Enneagram tests that you could take. Some of you have probably taken it. If you're old and you don't know what an Enneagram is, then maybe you remember the DISC personality profile. Anybody here in corporate America ever taken or leadership the DISC personality profile? Okay, two of you, right? You, you can take all sorts of things at men's night. We're going to be talking about spiritual gifts this time. If you've not yet checked out men's night, just a great group of guys gathering together trying to uh, pursue Jesus. Love for you to come. We're going to be hearing about spiritual gifts if you wanted to. You could jump online right now and take all sorts of fill-in-the-blank things about spiritual gifts, right? You could take something on your love language. A couple, I don't know, a week ago, 10 days ago, my uh, middle school daughter gave a test to my wife and I. This is a test I'd never uh, taken before. The test was, here it is, ready? You had a bunch of questions. What type of sea creature are you? (laughs) What type of sea creature are you? I am a squid. (laughs) I don't really know what that means, but if you're curious... The test tells me that I am a squiggly type creature that lets black ink come out of different parts of my body. So just thought you'd know that. This morning what we're going to do together is we're going to kind of walk through a little bit of a test together. It's going to be a test. We're going to have three questions that are going to ping off of what James said last week. And last week, and if you're new, what you may not know if it's your first Sunday, is 99% of the time. What we do here at Calvary is we open up a book of the Bible and then we preach through that book, kind of paragraph through paragraph, uh, many times sentence through sentence. We're doing that through the book of James. And last week, uh, last Sunday, where we ended in James was this kind of challenge in James chapter 1, verse 22. It says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, right? This challenge that hey, the point of what you hear is not just information, but it's transformation. And so you be doers of the word and not just hearers only. And this week, what James is going to do is as he continues to write, he's going to give three snapshots, snapshots. He's going to give three snapshots that help really flesh out what does this mean. He, He could tell us for hours, right? What it all, everything encompassed with being a doer of the word. He's not going to do that, but he's going to give us three things. And he's going to say, hey, if you want to be a doer of the word, then you're going to be doing these three things. You and I, we're going to package these as questions, as surveys, as tests to see, man, how effectively we're being doers of uh, of the word. Our text is going to be James 1, verses 26 through chapter 2, verse 13. And we'll see three tests of how well we're doing God's word. Kind of three big foundational points because James, if you've ever read it or even you've been here a few weeks, it is a really, really, really practical book. There is not a lot of deep theological uh, doctrine underneath James. You don't really hear a lot of theology. What you hear is more practical, right? Do this, do this, do this. I am so excited because we made yesterday chili. I love chili. I will eat this chili for the next four consecutive days in a row. It's going to be amazing. And yesterday as we were making this recipe, right, we followed a recipe. And the recipe said, do this, do this, do this, right? A quarter of a teaspoon of this, 42 cups of this, saute this. It's just instruction, instruction, instruction. James 
in many ways, is a Christian recipe book for how we're supposed to live, but it's important because when we hear all these kind of boom, boom, boom about what to do, sometimes we can get a little cloudy on things, and so we need to kind of come back to two foundational points before we jump into it. Two foundational points before we jump into this. James is not telling people, be doers of the word and do all these things because that's the way that you restore your relationship with God. There is a lot of conduct and behavior in this book. He is not telling that to people to how they can get into a relationship with God. He's writing to people who are already in a relationship with God, and he's telling them how they can live and how they should live based out of that relationship. I I don't want anybody to come for the next however many weeks and hear all the do's, 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 and leave here thinking, okay, I don't know God, but if I do this and do this and do these three things today, then I'm going to be right with God. Because that's not what the Bible teaches. What the Bible teaches is what makes us right with God is Jesus. And that we were separated from God because of sin, And Jesus came as a substitute. And he stood in my place, and he stood in your place, and he was punished for you. He was punished because of you. In that moment, this exchange took place where Jesus took your sin, and Jesus gave to you forgiveness, and that is all through grace. And we grab hold on that by faith. Jesus' work as a substitute is what restores us to God, what gives us hope, what allows us to be forgiven not doing anything. But then what James is saying is now though that you're restored to God because of Jesus as a substitute, there are ways that your life should reflect who you now are in Christ and that's what he's pressing into. First thing is doing any of this is not gonna make you right with God. This is what people who are right with God choose to do because of their love and their appreciation and they're wanting to become like Jesus who was their king who saved them. Second thing is this, right? Whenever, and this is where evangelical churches, or all churches, I guess, sometimes get a little sideways. Whenever there's a a text, a passage that's filled with do's, 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 don't do, 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 don't, right? It's easy for people to think like, okay, this is all about me. This is all about me. I got to work really hard. I got to pull my stuff up by the bootstraps. I don't even know what it means to pull yourself up by the bootstraps. And three quarters of you don't even know what that phrase means. That's the last time I'll ever say it. Okay, sometimes we hear all these do's, 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 and we think, okay, I got to just grind it out. It's my effort. It's my hard work. I got to get it done. I got to do this. No, yes, no. Because what enables us, I don't want anybody to leave here thinking, I now have a list of 40 things that I just got to find a way to do in my own strength. That's not what this is about. This is about people who believe in Jesus as their substitute are then given the Spirit, the Holy Spirit within them to empower them. And it's the Holy Spirit that gives you and me the power and the ability and the desire to do the things that James is setting out that we should do, right? The same, we talked about this last week. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that's within you if you're a Christian that will enable you and empower you to be able to do this. If the Holy Spirit was able through his power to resurrect a dude who was dead, That Holy Spirit has the same power to enable us to do the things God wants us to do. Big foundational point. None of this is about how you work your way back into God's favor. That's only through Jesus. 
And none of this is about work hard on your own to do this. We do this depending upon the Holy Spirit, using discipline, making choices, but trusting his power to shape us and to work in us. So with that said, what is it that James tells people who believe in Jesus, who have the power of the Spirit, what should their lives look like because of that relationship and because of the empowering of the Holy Spirit? Well, well, here's this first point. Here's the first thing that a doer does. Here's the first question we'll move into. It flows out of uh, verse 26, chapter 1. It says this. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So, little bit of um, just quick, quick things, right? Little, little, little nugget for you that some of you may know, some of you may not. The Old Testament originally was written in Hebrew, and the New Testament was originally written in Greek. Uh, the word that is translated here, religious, in the original Greek is a really, really interesting word because it... it not used many times in the New Testament, and it refers to just you're doing religious things. You're doing churchy things. So this is a person who's a Christian, but, and they're really, really busy doing Christian things. This is a person who they come to church every Sunday. They have not missed an in-person Sunday or a live stream during COVID. They've always been there. They're in a community group. They're serving in nursery. They don't really like babies, but they want to be a martyr. So they're serving in nursery. They're in a community group. They go to three Bible studies, right? They're going to come to Trunk or Treat. They're going to be out there now. They are busy, 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 busy. Church stuff, church stuff, church stuff, church stuff. But what James says is this, but they're Christians, but if... There's something that they are failing to do, then all that church stuff, their religion, is worthless. Now, <clears throat> we'll talk about this again later in James. This word worthless, these people are Christians. It's not talking about the fact that they're not Christians, it's not talking about the fact that they're going to lose their salvation. What this word worthless means is. Their religion, their faith, it's not bearing fruit. It's not being as vibrant as it can. It's not having the impact that it can, right? It, 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 man, there's things that they've been doing and there's a purpose, but they're not realizing everything God can do through them. There's an emptiness, even though they're doing all this, because there's something that they're not doing. So what is this thing that the person who's showing up at everything in the community group knows the Bible study, writes the Bible in a year, every year, whose faith is not bearing the fruit it can, who's not developing the way God wants. What is it that they're failing to do? Well, James has told us, if they don't bridle their tongue, doing all sorts of good stuff. But if they don't bridle his tongue, he deceives himself, and this person's religion is worthless. Now, <clears throat> I'm not randomly walking off stage to be dramatic. I'm walking off stage because this, it, guess what this is? You are all a bunch of USA equestrian team members, right? My sources tell me that this is a bridle. Let me figure out how this thing, oh man, I had it for the first service. Yeah, this looks good enough. Okay, here it is. Ready? You ready for Horsology 101? Man, you are so excited, aren't you? I can tell you're bursting at the seams. This bridle goes on a horsey. 
Horses scare me. Horses scare me. My daughter went to Trumbull High. She did the ag program. So part of what she did, she had a job at a man, this awesome local farm in Delio. And part of her job was uh, she had to take care of the horses. Cool thing was there's this little gator and we're flying to the fields. But then I would sometimes go help her take care of the horses in the stall. And I would walk into this horse stall. And you've probably heard like the little black beauty stuff about like, oh, if you look into a horse's eyes, you can see its soul. Man, when I looked in the horse's eyes, all I saw is Bubba, I want to kick you across the stall as hard as I can. I'm scared of horses. People who aren't scared of horses, put this on the horse. Okay, so this kind of goes over the horse's snout. This kind of goes around its headish ears. And then there's this deal, which is a bit. Anybody know where the bit goes? Yes, the bit goes in the mouth. And so, you guys are so smart. Around its little nose, around its little heady deal, in its mouth. And then what do you think that these things are? The, ra- the reins. What do you do with the reins? Yes, I should have brought a horse up here. <laughs> if we were a mega church in Atlanta, I'd be sitting on a horse right now. <clears throat> but we're not. <clears throat> so, okay, you're so smart. What, the, what do you do with the reins? You hold them, right? So, okay, let me ask one more question. When little baby horsey is born, does little baby horsey pop out of mama horse with this on them? No. What happens is when little baby horse grows into bigger baby horse and somebody wants to ride it, the rider of the horse takes this thing, puts this over the snout, puts this in the mouth, puts this around it, and then holds the reins. A bridle, does that do any good to control the horse? No. In order to control the horse, the rider actively puts it on. And then once it is on, the rider actively controls by moving, by acting, by holding, by pulling. Constantly in control of the horse with the bridle. You've heard about my amazing yellow lab puppy, Ford. Ford is now eight or nine, eight or nine months old, and he, man, he is all yellow lab, which means he loves every single one of you in here. Whether you like dogs or not, he just thinks you're amazing. If you came over to my house, he would be hopping like a kangaroo when you came to the door. He would be running. If you sat down, he will constantly put his nose under your arm because he wants love, right? And it's, it's, it's crazy. He is out of his mind. But he's so happy to see his little booty shaking, his nose is popping. And, and if I just sat on my couch and yelled as you came into my house, Oh, sorry, I just can't control my dog. You'd be thinking like, bro, you better get off the couch and try to control this dog. Dogs are not passively controlled. Horses are not passively bridled. It takes the person doing something to control that thing. And here's the point of why James used the illustration of a bridle, because here's what he's trying to say. A doer of God's word should control their words. And to control their words, they've got to control their words. Profound. A doer of God's word, according to James, needs to control their words. And to control their words, they have to control their words. 
the bridal illustration shows that this control is not passive. It is an active thing you've got to do, just like you've got to put the bridle and control the bridle. What he's saying is, look, if you're a Christian, you've got to be a doer of the word, and you control your words, and you control your words by controlling your words. By the power of the Spirit, control it. And I think sometimes what people do, who this is a challenging area for them, is they'll spout off, right? They'll, they'll, they'll say something, and then they'll be like, oh, well, I just can't control what I say. And what James would say is, you're not controlling what you say because you're not controlling what you say. It's not something passive. It's something active. And James says, you got to actively bridle it And there is a direct correlation, according to James, with the impact of our faith, vitality of our faith, fruitfulness of our faith, and our ability to, depending on the Spirit, control our words. Here's the first kind of test for you and me this morning. The first test is this. Do you have, do I have, control in our speech. Do you have, do I have control in our speech? Are you a gossip? No, I'm not a gossip. Gossip is wrong. I mean, the other day I told Sally about Billy, but I mean, Billy's going through a divorce and he cheated on his wife. And I mean, Sally went to high school with him. I just thought it was really important that Sally knows that, but, but I'm not a gossip. Yeah, you are. Are you a gossip. When you think about controlling your words, are you using your speech to create division and disunity? Or are you using your speech and your words in a controlled way to foster and to bolster unity and interconnectedness? Are there comments that you make when you think about words that are demeaning of somebody? of a different gender, of a different socioeconomic status, of a different ethnicity, of a different background. And and you think to yourself, man, I don't do that. I mean, when I'm with the boys who know me, right, I mean, yeah, I'll make a few comments, but I mean, those those guys know my heart. They know I don't really mean that, right? Well, maybe your heart is showing itself in the comments that you make with the boys. And then the question is this, and this is a huge one. None of us are able to do this fully. None of us. When you have failed to do this, when you have failed to control your speech, do you then try to exercise control in your speech by going up to that person who you were wrong with, unkind to, said something inappropriate to, and say, you know what? I'm sorry. I'm sorry, because I got angry. In my anger, I said things I shouldn't have said. Or I'm sorry, because you know what? In the moment, what I said wasn't appropriate. It wasn't honoring of other people, and I shouldn't say that. And a lot of times what we see happen is people can't control their speech, but then those people never apologize. And this is, see, this is why this is so important. 
Because many times what shapes your life and shapes my life as a Christian, and many times what determines the impact and the fruit that flows through our lives are not those major turning point moments in life. Many times it's the everyday, mundane, day after day, day after day, day after day ways that we conduct ourselves in the ordinary business of life. And we either represent Jesus well in the ordinary or we have an area in which to improve in the ordinary. James then moves into this second question of, uh, of how well are you doing what God wants you to do, and he moves into that uh, in verse 27, right? This is the second thing that a doer of God's word should be doing. He says this, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Religion that is undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their infliction and to keep oneself unstained in the world. Visit. This doesn't mean like um, you know somebody's going through a hard time and you're driving by their house and so you roll your window down and you're like, hey, how you doing? Okay, just thinking of you. Good. Have a good day. Bye. It's not a drive-by. It's not even a a drop-in. What, what this word carries with it, this idea of, of visit, right? It carries with this idea of you're actually engaged. You're actually spending time. You're actually listening. You're actually chepping up with. There's this concept of shepherding where, okay, you're also in, you're in their life and you're trying to think about what do they need and how can I help them get there. And in this culture, orphans and widows were some of the most, uh, faced the biggest challenges, because there was no life insurance, there was no government programs, and so if somebody lost their husband, they weren't getting a life insurance payout if you lost your parents. There weren't any government programs to help you out. It would be very, very challenging for a child in this culture or for a woman who didn't have a husband to find a job. They couldn't do it. So you'd have this person who had no support around them, had no means of financial nest egg, unable to find work, and they'd be struggling. And what James is saying is someone who does God's word is somebody who actively cares about people who have needs and engages in their lives to help meet the needs throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. Again and again and again, is this repeated refrain of take care of widows and orphans, take care of widows and orphans, and then by larger implication, take care of the poor among you. And what James is saying is true Christianity is not manifested by whether you know in Leviticus where it says to leave a little hay on the side of the road for the poor people. But true Christianity is manifested by whether you're actually doing anything to help people who have needs initially in the body. One theme that keeps coming up and coming up is we are a body. And we, whether you like it or not, Calvary Church, we are interconnected and we are interdependent. And what James is saying is an interconnected and interdependent unit of people, what you need to make sure you're doing is helping care for and meet the needs of the people beginning within that body. Lots of other verses that talk about and outside it, but to begin with in here. And the question is this, and so the second test 
Are you sacrificially caring <clears throat> for people with needs? Are you sacrificially caring for people with needs? And, and I was thinking about this, and man, in many ways, this body does this remarkably well. It, it does not mean that we shouldn't think about doing it better. But I know for some of you and some people in our church, the way that you care for orphans is either adoption is part of your story or foster care. Uh, amazing, right? For single people or for families who most of the time when you folks who have adopted somebody are doing foster care, you, you've kind of got the foundation of your life settled. And you've kind of got things in place where it could be, and you could keep going just pushing after you, you, you. But God laid on your heart that there's these kids who don't have a family. And so you sacrificially <clears throat> act to provide a loving place for those kids to be and to be cared for. And I know, I mean, we, we have several families in our church, right, who are either here today, right now, or watching this is your story. And I know because we have some very dear friends in Savannah who foster several children and have moved into adoption. And for those of you who are in that adopt, foster to adopt process or just foster care process, I've never walked that, but from walking with them, I know some of the emotional ups and downs and peaks and valleys of that story. And I know that it's not really easy. But for those of you who are doing that, Man, you're, you're, you're loving Jesus well by loving those children who don't have a family well. Maybe that's not the way you do it. Maybe you love well other people here. There is an amazing lady uh, who many of you know who comes to Calvary, and she lives by herself, and she is sharp, and she is an encourager by letter writing, always le writing letters, constantly sharp, encouraging, thanking, and, and she's not able to drive. <clears throat> and so what many of you do is, is you get up a little earlier on a Sunday morning. Gas is now like $72 a gallon. You put $72 a gallon worth of gas in your car, and you go to pick somebody up who's part of this body who can't get here so that they can be part here. And it's not just that lady's story. There's many older people who you care for. And, and in many ways, our church is doing a great job, which is good because we're interdependent and we're interconnected. But if you've not yet been able to do that, if you've not yet been able to just, okay, how do I do this? How do we sacrificially care for somebody? What, what I'd love for you to think about is just somebody around you that you know. <clears throat> somebody you know in this church, somebody you know in your neighborhood who maybe they fall into one of these categories. Maybe they lost a spouse. Maybe they're just, maybe, they, maybe they're an orphan in the sense that even if they're in their 40s, they've lost their parents. And or somebody who's just alone for whatever reason, or somebody who has just financial needs, right? Because that is what's part of this. I want you just to think for a minute. Who around you, one person, that that's their story, that you know of a tangible thing they're going through. The second question is this. How could you encourage them? How could you encourage them? It could be a text. It could be a fist bump on the way out of church, <clears throat> or it could be a, a significantly sacrificial act of love to try to help meet that person's needs. Who do you know? What would it look like for you to do this? Is there a way for you to do this 
today? And then the question is this, well, what's stopping you? You know what stops me? Time and selfishness. Time and selfishness. It means I'd have to get off my couch and stop playing Mario Kart. Is there someone you know? How could you meet their needs? And what would stop you from doing that before you hand out your first piece of Halloween candy today? What could you do? Your words and your control of them matter. And how you care for people with needs who are alone matters. And this matters for how we act as individuals, but it has huge impact for what we do corporately. There in my backyard <clears throat> about six months ago, maybe, maybe longer, my neighbor came over. We, 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 my wife is an amazing gardener, does a great job. I am. Eh, okay. Our neighbors on either side of us are like competing for the like, I don't know what, Fairfield County Gardens of the Century, okay? So very good gardeners. One, one time my neighbor came over... <clears throat> this past summer, and we have these random two little trees over in the corner. And, and, and she's probably been thinking this for eight years. But she says to me finally, she says, you know what, Peter, can I just say something? I'm like, yeah. She says, you see how those trees are all green at the top? And I'm like, yeah, right? Isn't it amazing? They're all green. They're perfect. And then she said, well, <clears throat> I just want you to know that's not really the tree, that that's actually like this vine that has gotten to the top of the tree, and it's a parasite and it's killing everything. And I'm like, no, how can that be? It's greed. And she's like, bro, it is a vine that has just grown for years. So I said to myself, I do not want that vine up there. So well, the first thing I tried to do is pull that vine down. There's a guy who's dating one of my daughters. He's strong. He came over. I'm like, bro, we're going to pull this thing down. Let me tell you, my house was built in 1930. I think this vine started growing about 1932, okay? There is no way we're pulling this thing down. It's like 50 feet. We're pulling. So then I finally said, forget it. I'm not pulling it. I'm just going to kill it. And so I got the little thing, the little saw, the little clippers, and I mean, the base of this vine was like that, and I'm hacking and sawing, and I just cut the vine off at the base. And now, if you look at the top of my tree, it is dead, <laughs> and it is crinkly, and it is brown, and it has no vitality because the thing that was helping fuel it, I have separated right? Now, I have this master plan when it keeps getting dead to pull it down. We'll see how that happens. If I end up in a full body cast, you'll know that it didn't happen so well, right? But, but, but here's the point. What, what Jesus' brother is saying is, as a body, you have an opportunity to either do things that make this strong and vibrant, and you do that by speaking well to one another, and you do that by caring for each other because you are interconnected and you are interdependent. Or you make a choice not to do those things. And what you are then choosing to do is to take the saw to the bottom of that vine to cut, to cut, to cut, which doesn't bring life, but eventually could make us look a little dry and crinkly and not as vibrant. Well, what determines how healthy and how rich our life together as a church body is, is how you treat us and how we treat you. 
And you can either choose to do it the way that God says and do it in meaningful ways where we speak well and we speak in unifying ways and we speak of loving ways and we care for each other, or you can choose by your actions and your words and your choices, nope, and you hack away at the bottom of the vine. And it kills us. And James doesn't just end there. Then James says, guys, I got one more place I'm going to take you. I got one more test for a doer of God's word, one more way that you act, right? People who believe the right thing should do the right thing. And so there's one more test. And this test involves, don't get scared. I'll get you home in plenty of time to get to Walmart to get your candy, okay? This test involves a command, an illustration, an inconsistency, and a failure to do what you should do. A command, and an illustration, an inconsistency, and a failure to do what you should do. So what's the command? He moves into this third command for you and me as, as, as doers of God's word, and he says this, chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Show no partiality. The command is show no partiality. Now, this word is really interesting. Literally, again, in the Greek, what it means is receive the face. Receive the face. What it means is you look at somebody, and you see what they look like, and because of what they look like, you treat them in a certain way. You look at somebody, and because of what they look like, you receive the face, and then you either treat them better or you treat them more poorly than the other people simply because of what they look like. You're judging by external appearances, and then you're giving special favor or treatment or preference because of what you see externally when you receive the face. The command is very simple, and it says, do not, right, do not treat people differently based on external appearances or attributes. What James is saying is, hey, church, doers of God's word are people who do not treat people within the church primarily. This is where it's starting, but it obviously extends outside the church. But, But you don't treat people differently based on external appearances or attributes. This is written to Christians. And so it's something that Christians were doing. It was written to Christians who were in local spaces churches, and James is going to spend a whole lot of time talking about it, which shows, man, maybe it was a problem that they were, it was a problem that they were wrestling with. It was a problem that they were wrestling with. And so the third test for you and me as being doers of God's word is this question. Are you, am I, are we treating people differently or thinking of people differently because of what they look like? Are we treating people differently or thinking of people differently because of what they look like? And I'm going to say something. I'm going to say it because it's actually important to me. I am asking us this question this morning as a church. Do you know what I'm asking us this question? I'm not trying to correct anything right now, right? I'm, I, the reason I put this question on the screen is because we're preaching through the book of James. The reason I put this question on the screen is because we have just read a Bible verse that says, show no partiality. And because partiality means you treat people differently because of how they look. I don't have a single political angle in putting that up there. I'm putting that up there 
Not because I'm trying to force an agenda on any of you. I'm putting that up there because it's in the Bible verse, and it's in James chapter 2, verse 1, and because Jesus' brother wrote it down, and because we talk about the things that are in the Bible. You can choose to believe me. You can choose not to believe me. But I tell you, the question is on the screen, not because I'm trying to force anything down anybody's throat. The question is on the screen because it's a question that Jesus' brother says we should ask. And so the question is, are you treating people differently because of that? James then gives an illustration of what this looks like, right? This is the command. Now, James then gives an illustration Verse 2, for if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing, you say, you sit here in the good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down on my feet, have you, then, have you not then made distinctions upon yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, so you've, you've heard what it is, right? And in this illustration, it has to do with external appearances that seems to suggest wealth, right? A difference in socioeconomic status. And what he's saying, right is this hey a dude walks into the church and man he's got on a cool threads right he's got a big old new apple watch he's got him the iphone 27 that hasn't even been developed yet and you say to the guy do you want the best seat in the house do you know what the best you will i know you don't know this do you know what the best seat in the house in the church in that day was (laughs) there are four of you sitting there like 20, right? Now, actually, in this church, this is amazing, right? I'll spit on you. You can worry about if I'm giving you COVID. These, in this culture, in our culture, like behind the divider is the best seat in the house. And this, in that culture, this was the best seat, right? And they're giving preferential treatment to that. I remember that one time my kids, I don't remember if it was like a concert or a, a musical. It was some event we were going to go to, right? So I jumped online and I got some tickets. It might have been Fiddler on the Roof or it may have been a Stephen Curtis time. Anyway, we went to some theater in New York City. And when I say... We had the worst seats in the house. That is not pastoral exaggeration. You think back wall, and then you think my back up against it, right? And, and we were so far up. There were these little people down there doing something, right? And if it had been Fiddler, like, I don't know, they might have been singing, like, to life, to life, Lahayam, right? But it's like, kids, I mean, I think it's Fiddler on the roof, but who knows? They're so far away. That was not a good seat. And we don't know how true to life this illustration is. We don't know whether this is actually what was happening, that rich dude came in, got all the props, poor dude didn't get anything. We don't know if it's just an illustration, uh, but we, we do know, as man, the early church, <clears throat> they had a lot of stuff they had to try to figure out. Before, when Jesus was on earth doing his ministry for 33 years, there, there were all sorts of different teams there were all sorts of different tribes. There were all sorts of different people groups, right? And it was split up during Jesus' ministry. There were the Jews, and then there were Gentiles. And you, you probably heard about this in different sermons. They did not like each other. There were rich people, and there were poor people. They did not hang out and play Yahtzee together. There were slave owners, and there were slaves. They were not getting together to get to parties pizza to watch the Super Bowl. There are all these tribes, these groups, who didn't like each other while Jesus was doing ministry. Jesus is murdered. Jesus is resurrected. Jesus ascends to heaven. And then it's the book of Acts. <clears throat> the book of Acts begins, and it is like, hey, 
church plant of Jerusalem, first church of Jerusalem, community Bible church of Jerusalem, right? And it is launch day Sunday, first day of this amazing church plant. And there's like signs. They got their best graphic designer to be like, come to the Jerusalem church. There's the little like wavy dude you see at the car lots, right? It is the first Sunday of the new church. And then into that church and into every, pretty much every other early New Testament church, there would be a group of people who would come in, the Gentiles, who like loved Jesus. And they'd look across the room and they'd see somebody of another tribe that they didn't like. And they'd think to themselves, oh, this is really awkward. Like I've spent my whole life not hanging out with them. And now like we're all here for launch Sunday and I've already had the free cup of coffee. I don't know if I can just sneak out the door. And then over here, the other people, they're looking at like, oh, this is so uncomfortable. Look who just walked in the door. And you'd have these teams of people who, they all believed in Jesus. And he'd revolutionized their lives. And they'd spent so much of their lives dividing among each other. And now they were in church together. And they had to figure it out. They had to figure it out. And this, with the rich poor, throughout Corinthians, time and time again, there's something come up that would be a source of division, and the writers in the New Testament are like, hey, y'all believe in Jesus. you got to figure it out. Because you're a family. And you're interconnected. And you're interdependent. And you need to figure out how to be different people who have different stories and different backgrounds who all believe in the same Savior, worshiping under the same roof. And what James is telling this group of Christians is don't you dare let wealth divide you. Don't you dare look, let looks divide you. The New Testament churches had a ton of work to do on this. And I am not up here saying that, that there is this... Um, <clears throat> ongoing uh, division of this type that's like, uh, if there was, we would have addressed it, right? What, what I am saying is, and I said this at the family dinner, it could happen at any minute. At any minute, we could come in here and, man, the enemy doesn't want us to be united. He doesn't. He doesn't. He wants to see us about as dead as that dead vine on top of my weird tree in my yard. He wants to see us fracture over things that ultimately have no bearing on eternity. And he wanted to see that happen about 22 minutes ago, an hour ago, five hours ago. I don't want to see that. I don't want to see that. Because I'm part of a family with you. And you're part of a family with me. And we have the opportunity to do what Christians throughout the history of the New Testament does. We're going to figure it out. Because we're united on one roof with different stories and different convictions and different thoughts. But we worship one Savior. And what you do matters and what I do matters. And what will determine if you and we are able to do that is how you treat me and how we treat you. We are the ones who decide what happens. You do know that, right? <clears throat> There's not like some spaceship controlling Calvary Church, right? There's not like, oh, ha, 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 we're going to. What you choose to do when you don't agree with us and what I choose to do when I don't agree with you. What I choose to do when I see somebody walk through the door who doesn't look like me 
And what you choose to do when you see someone who looks more like you that you want to give special treatment to or attention, that, that's what's going to decide how well we navigate this thing together. And I think we can navigate it excellently. I do. And I've not given up on navigating. I'm just inviting you to navigate it along with me. Can we navigate this together? Can we? Well, imagine a church that's actually able to stay united. Shocking thing, right? Man, I want that to be part of our story. I want that to be part of our story because God wants it to be part of our story. And so he gives this this illustration, and then he talks about why it's inconsistent to treat other people this way. And he says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in this world, verse 5, to be rich in faith and heirs in the kingdom, which he promised to those, but you have dishonored the poor man. Here's what God's saying. Man, if you're judging someone because of the wealth you think they do or don't have, and you're treating them differently, man, it's inconsistent because God adores the poor. And if you are a child of God, then your heart should be aligned with your father. And so you should be caring for the poor and not being the one to discriminate them because all of us are equal at the foot of the cross. All of us are equal at the foot of the cross. And then he says, and not only is it an inconsistency, but it's a violation, this church, that church, about what you're supposed to be doing. And he hits that in verses 8 and verses 9. If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, if you receive the face, if you treat somebody differently because of what they're doing, what he says then, then you're violating what you're supposed to be doing. And he takes us back to what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. And we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so, man, we get to love each other. We get to love each other. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not self-seeking. Love keeps no records of wrongs. Get this one, ready? Love is not easily angered. And we could continue. And we have an opportunity to do that because we're interdependent and we're interconnected. And so we're going to love each other, according to James. Those persons who look like you and those who don't look like you. Those who you think have as much money as you and those who don't. Those you enjoy being with and those you don't. Man, let's do what God tells us to do because it matters. We do it because we're commanded to do it. We do it because of the opportunity to do it. We do it because we're a body that's interconnected and interdependent, and we need each other. You you know, we do it because we're commanded, but we're also doing an awesome worship team to come up here as we move and start to conclude our service. We do it because the reason we love another person is because God first loves us. 1 John says this, we love because he first loved us. God loved you, and God loved me, and God loved us when we were least deserving of that love, right? There's another verse in Romans that says, when Christ died for us, it was while we were yet sinners. We weren't deserving of it. We hadn't earned it. We weren't really nice people, but in our worst position, in our worst place, that is the time that God chose to show his love to us through Jesus. 
We love because we're commanded to do it. We love because God first loved us, and God first loved us when we weren't, when we were the least deserving of it. And this morning, we have an opportunity for those of us who are believers to affirm that and to remember that, right, and to cling to that and to be grateful for that and to hold to that. And if you're not a Christian, this is a, a, a something that, that Christians do. I just invite you uh, not to do it, right, because we're going to affirm something we believe. And if you don't believe it, then, then you shouldn't do it. Um, and nobody will know if you take or not. But here's what I'd love to do before we move into this. We've said three things that we should do. We should speak properly to each other. We should care for each other. And we should not show partiality to people who look differently or based upon how they look. And I just want to say before we move into this, is there a way this week that you've not done that? Have you spoken poorly? Have you shown partiality? Have you purposely failed to care for somebody? And what I want to do is just give us 20 seconds where we are to confess that, to deal with that. Father, we fail in this in many ways. And Father, I'm grateful for the ways in which some of us have spoken poorly to others this week and used words we shouldn't have had or shown partiality because somebody looks different than us or not sacrificially cared for somebody. Father, you've already forgiven us of that. You've already forgiven us of that and all the sins we've committed through Jesus. And thank you for that hope. And now, Father, as we move to remember what Jesus did for us, I pray that you remind us of the amazing love and your care and the delight that comes from knowing we're redeemed and we're restored. Amen. I would invite you, as a member of this body and the larger body, to take the little wafer that represents this symbol of the body of Christ. And you know what's so interesting? All the time throughout Scripture, you keep hearing these words of one body, one body broken, one spirit, one spirit. This is something we do to remember Jesus, but this is something we do to also remember the unity that we have in Jesus. That what unites us together is what we're remembering now. You are a child of God. I'm a child of God. We have that in common. And so, man, we worship God together well. And what enables us to be right with God is what Jesus has done for us, which we remember now through taking the bread that reminds us of his body that was broken for us. I also invite you to take this cup, right? Another thing that all of us who are Christians share in common. You know what we share in common? All of us who are Christians, you know what unites us? We're not guilty anymore. We're not guilty anymore. All the guilt, all the shame, all the condemnation, we're united in the fact that Jesus has taken care of it all, that Jesus paid it all. And that's awesome, right? And one day what we're going to see is our Savior who's forgiven us. But until that day, we live by faith and we live by sight. And so as people who are living by faith, we take this cup together that reminds us of our unity and reminds us, Jesus, to give us strength to press on one more time until we see our Savior who actually initiated this rite of remembrance. So I invite you to take the cup and drink it with me.